I was minding my own business this morning when a hacker came along and stole my data from the unsecured public network. Gee, I wish there was some way to prevent that from happening. All you need is ExpressVPN. A VPN, or virtual private network, encrypts your data so the bad guys can't steal it. Wow! Have you ever heard of dynamic pricing? What's that? Online retailers charge you more based on where you live. With ExpressVPN, you can appear anywhere you want and get the best deal. That's my favorite kind of deal. What else can ExpressVPN do for me? You can get access to streaming content that's normally blocked in your region. Could I even use it to get past restrictions on work or school networks? Yes, all you have to do is use the ExpressVPN app on your device. You can even use it on your router. That's right. Just go to expressvpn.com forward slash capital A, capital C, capital P for a special offer and get three months free when you sign up for one year of service. What a deal. Thanks, Thanks ExpressVPN. Express That's expressvpn.com forward slash capital ACP. August 21st, 1955, Kelly, Kentucky, 7 p.m. Billy Ray Taylor steps outside the Sutton farmhouse to fetch water. A UFO flies overhead and comes to rest in the gully at the end of the field. A short time later, around 8 p.m., little men approach the house. They are small, perhaps three feet tall, their arms unusually long, their taloned fingers almost reach the ground. Their glowing yellow eyes terrify the family for hours until they flee to the local police station for help. Officers descend on the farmhouse, search the grounds and surrounding fields, but don't find any trace of the little men. After the officers depart, the little men return and harass the family until sunrise. The Sutton family, exhausted and sleepless, then endures invaders of a different nature, people curious to see if what they heard on the news was true. What did the family see? Was it all a hoax? An escaped monkey gone bad? Or could it have been visitors from another planet? Let's find out in Episode 2, The Kelly Goblins. It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as I examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. That's A-L-I-E-N-C-O-N-P-O-D. I would love to hear from you. Well, I wanted to do this as a weekly show. One thing led to another. I got sick and lost my voice. I found a co-host for the show, and I just kind of got sidetracked. So here we are, a little bit late, but better late than never. Before we get into this week's case, it's time for... Strange Events, Bizarre Facts, The Unbelievable Revealed. This is the Mind Boggle of the Week. Neutron Stars A giant star collapses on itself. The heat and pressure become so great that matter breaks down at the atomic level. Electrons and protons combine into neutrons and release a flood of neutrinos. This ejects the outer layer of the star, creating a supernova. 
the leftover core becomes a neutron star if it has less than three solar masses, or a black hole if it has more. These strange objects are so dense that twice the mass of our sun is packed into a sphere 20 kilometers across. For those of us living in measurementally challenged countries, I won't name any names, the sphere is 12 miles across. If the Earth could be compressed into a neutron star, it would be 260 meters, or 850 feet, across. This is approximately three football fields, or, if you prefer, two and a half European football fields. A teaspoon of neutron star weighs the same as 900 Great Pyramids of Giza. This kind of density is only possible because normal matter is broken apart into atomic particles. You could say that a neutron star is a gigantic atomic nucleus. Neutron stars have other strange properties besides extreme density. They retain the angular momentum of the parent star, resulting in incredible rotational periods between 1.4 milliseconds and 30 seconds. There are 1,000 milliseconds in a second, meaning that the fastest spinning neutron stars can rotate 40,000 times a minute. It's almost hard to imagine next to our 24 hours. Their surface gravity is 10 to the 11 times that of Earth, or about 100 billion times stronger, and the escape velocity is as high as half the speed of light. The gravity is so incredibly strong that it acts as a lens, bending light from behind the star so that an observer can see its back from the front. Some neutron stars have gravity so powerful that photons are trapped in an orbit and the whole surface of the star is visible only from a single vantage point. If an object fell from a height of one meter, it would be going 1,400 kilometers per second when it struck the surface, if it could reach the surface, which it can't, because it would be broken apart into a stream of particles first. The intense gravity leads to time dilation. Eight years on the star would be 10 on Earth. Neutron stars have the strongest known magnetic field of any object in the universe, by orders of magnitude. The strongest of these are called magnetars and have fields quadrillions of times stronger than that of Earth. It is so powerful that it bends space-time and would be lethal to all life within a thousand kilometers. Anything at all within that range would be pulled and twisted apart from the magnetic force alone. Photons split and merge. The vacuum of space itself becomes polarized. Atoms are stretched so much that they become cylinders thinner than the wavelength of an electron. The first neutron star was detected in 1967 by Jocelyn Bell and dubbed LGM-1 for little green men because the regular signal it produced suggested the possibility of intelligence. The closest known neutron star is the aptly named RX J1856.5-3754, 400 light-years from Earth. There are approximately 2,000 known in the Milky Way galaxy. They are one of the most bizarre objects known to man. What would it be like to visit a neutron star? Could some form of life, incomprehensible to us, 
exist anywhere near such a thing, it boggles the mind. And now, time for the show. Eleven people occupied the farmhouse that night on August 21st, 1955. Eight adults and three children. They were Mrs. Glennis Lankford, age 50, widow of Oscar Lankford. Elmer Lucky Sutton, age 25, Mrs. Lankford's son by her first husband. Vera Sutton, age 29, Lucky's wife. J.C. Sutton, age 21, Mrs. Lankford's son. Aline Sutton, 27, J.C.'s wife. Lonnie, Charlton, and Mary Lankford, Mrs. Lankford's children, age 12, 10, and 7. Billy Ray Taylor, 21, a friend of Lucky's. June Taylor, 18, Billy's wife. O.P. Baker, brother of Aileen Sutton. All of these people, save June, who was too terrified to look, witnessed the creatures. The night was hot. At 7 p.m., Billy Ray went out to the well in the backyard for water. He came back in, frightened, telling of a UFO that came to rest in a gully near the house. It was silvery bright, flew 30 feet overhead, and the exhaust was all the colors of the rainbow. The gully beyond a field wasn't visible from the house. No one believed his tale of the UFO, nor did they investigate the gully to find the craft. Someone suggested that it had been a shooting star. A little while later, around 8 p.m., the dog began to bark. Lucky and Billy Ray went to see what was bothering the animal, who hid under the house and did not come out until the next day. Then they saw why the dog was hiding. A strange glow approached the house from the fields. When it got closer, they saw a small man. He was three and a half feet tall, had an oversized head that was perfectly round, and arms that extended almost to the ground. It had huge, taloned hands. Its eyes were much bigger than the human eyes and glowed with a yellowish light. The eyes were directed neither to the front or the side, but about midway between. The creature was seemingly made entirely of silver metal that gave off an eerie light in the darkness, like the light from a radium dial on a watch. It raised its arms as it slowly approached the house, as if someone had told him he was about to be robbed. Lucky armed himself with a 20-gauge shotgun, Billy Ray with a 22 rifle. They stayed in the house waiting for it to get closer. When it was within 20 feet of the house, both men fired. The creature flipped backwards, scrambled upright, and scurried away into the darkness. The men waited a few minutes, saw only darkness, and retreated to the living room. A creature, perhaps a different one, appeared at the side window. The two men fired at it through the screen. They appeared to hit it. Once again, the creature flipped backwards and disappeared. Mrs. Langford had thought the two men were only joking around, but became concerned around 10 p.m. when Aline came in the house terrified, having seen one of the little men. Mrs. Langford suggested turning off the house lights, which they did. She went into the hallway and crouched next to Billy Ray looking outside to see what was happening. After 20 minutes, one of the creatures approached the door. She lost her balance, fell on the floor, and screamed. Just then, Billy shot at the creature. 
it jumped backwards and up to the overhang on the door. The men went outside. Billy Ray went first, as he stood under the small overhanging roof about to step into the yard. A clawed hand reached down and grabbed his hair. The people in the house screamed a warning at him, and Aline pulled him back into the house. Lucky rushed past, now wielding a 12-gauge shotgun, fired at the creature on the overhang and knocked it off the roof. Billy Ray yelled, There's one up in the tree, too. It was on the limb of the maple tree to their right. Lucky and Billy Ray both shot it, knocking it off the tree. It floated to the ground where they shot it again, and it scurried off into the weeds. At that time, another creature came around the corner of the house, perhaps the one from the overhang appearing right in front of Lucky. He shot at it point-blank range with his 12-gauge shotgun. It sounded like the shot hit a metal bucket. It flipped over, got up, and ran into the darkness, seemingly unhurt. By this point, everyone in the house was terrified. They waited in darkness, hoping that the creatures had finally gone away. Some time later, they heard a scraping, tapping on the metal kitchen roof. Lucky and Billy went back outside to see a creature moving up the kitchen roof. They shot it once again, appearing to knock the creature off. It floated 40 feet to the back fence where it perched. They shot it again, knocking it off the fence. It scurried off into the weeds. At 11 p.m., they decided to flee the house in search of help. The children were crying. One of them was screaming and hysterical and had to be carried to the cars. They drove to the Hopkinsville police station. The police didn't really believe the story of the little men. However, the family was clearly afraid of something. Chief Greenwell later said, something scared those people, something beyond reason. Police all over the county received the call and raced to the farm. En route, one of the officers saw meteors passing overhead. They made a whining noise and sounded like artillery fire. They were traveling in the direction of the farm and did not look like ordinary meteors. Four military police, a reporter, a photographer, and an unknown assortment of civilians also went to the farm that night. Chief Greenwell later said, in and around the whole area, the house, the fields that night, there was a weird feeling. It was partly uneasiness, but not entirely. Everyone had it. There were men there that I'd called brave men. Men I've been in dangerous situations with. They felt it too. They've told me so. The chief found what was perhaps the only physical evidence of the encounter. Behind the house on the far side of the back fence, next to where one creature had perched, Greenwell saw a luminous patch on the ground. It was small, 1.5 feet in diameter. Strangely, it could only be seen in one direction, from behind the fence, standing in the yard looking out. Other officers examined this mystery as well, and all agreed that at close range nothing was visible, but when viewing from the yard, the luminous patch was in stark contrast to its surroundings. The police didn't find anything else that night. Apparently, they didn't search the gully. Mrs. Langford said, Nobody went out there that night. They were all too scared. The police began to leave, and by 2 a.m., the family was once again alone. 
Tired from the ordeal, they lay down to sleep. But the little men came back. Around 2.30, as Mrs. Lankford lay trying to sleep, she saw a glow in the window next to her bed. A creature put its little clawed hands on the screen and stared silently into the room. She looked away and back again, hoping she was imagining the creature. She quietly called the rest of the family to come and look. Lucky said he was going to shoot, but she asked him not to. Lucky said, ma'am, I'm going to shoot that little man, and fired. The shot was no more effective than any other. There are fewer details of the second encounter, perhaps because the family was exhausted and confused. But the little men continued to harass them until 5.15 a.m., 30 minutes before sunrise. While some variation between witnesses was evident, mostly they all described the exact same things. The creatures moved very quickly. Despite what newspapers said, there were only ever one to two seen at any given time. It was reported by the witnesses that when they approached the house, they walked slowly with their hands up, but when fleeing, they appeared to run with their hands, using legs only for balance. The creatures seemed to avoid light. This might be for concealment, but could also be because their eyes, lacking both pupil and eyelids, were too sensitive to the light. In the dark, the creatures glowed, but in the light they had a dull metallic look. They had triangular ears, large and floppy, wrinkled like leather. They appeared to have no gender and no smell. When shot or yelled at, their glow increased. They made no noise and never opened their mouths, but did make movement noise, such as when moving through the brush or the scraping tapping sound, perhaps made by their talons, on the roof. They never did anything hostile, never tried to enter the house, only stood at a window or door looking in. It's not clear how many shots were fired. One neighbor heard nothing, while another said it sounded like a battle was going on. Police came the following day. Once again, they searched the fields and woods around the house. This time, they searched the gully as well. The roof, dusty from the drought, showed no evidence of the creatures. Billy Ray, while hunting with a friend on the 22nd, saw two Army airplanes circling over the area. One was a light observation plane, perhaps taking photographs, while the other was larger and may have been a DC-3. There's no known record of any military investigation, and the government has insisted many times that it never investigated or received official reports of the incident in Kelly. Local radio engineer Andrew Ledwith heard about the event. He recently learned about police sketches, and having some small ability, he decided to travel to the Sutton Farm and attempt a sketch. He interviewed the witnesses in different groups, but the resulting sketches were nearly identical, all except the one given by Billy Ray, who appeared to enjoy the attention and added details that none of the other witnesses described. The details of the sketches were, the head was the same color as the body, some compared it to an egg. The eyes were like saucers. They were oversized, yellow, and glowing. The skin texture was neither smooth or wrinkled, but had qualities of both. No one was sure of the number of fingers, and no one had seen its feet. The ears extended to the side and above the head. The legs and forearms were thin and spindly, as if they were made of broom handles. The mouth was a thin line that extended from ear to ear, 
It didn't have any lips. Lucky was firm that there was no mouth. O.P. Baker and J.C. Sutton insisted there was a thin line across the face. Everyone agreed, except Billy Ray, that the thing had no neck and no nose. When Mr. Ledwith was finished, the witnesses said the sketch looked exactly like the creatures they had seen. Some of the witnesses asked that the sketch be taken away because it was frightening and they didn't want to look at it any longer. The police wanted a copy of the sketch. The Air Force investigator on scene did not want a copy. Wait, hold on. The Air Force claimed that they didn't investigate this, but the amateur sketch artist, whose sketch was so good that the witnesses asked it be taken away, talked with an Air Force investigator who didn't want his sketch. He also spoke with someone from the Army who claimed to not be there on official business. But the government says they didn't investigate? Sure, buddy. In that case, I got this new altcoin to sell you. Anyways, the public, hearing of the incident, swarmed the house, coming and going as they pleased. The doors on the house didn't have any locks, and there were so many people that there was really no way to keep them out. Lucky had gone out, and when he got back at 8.30 p.m., there were so many cars that he had to park a mile away. The family was exhausted, having gotten no sleep. They asked the people to leave, but were ignored. Even when Mrs. Langford broke down in tears from exhaustion and begged them to leave, they remained, demanding photographs and souvenirs. The following day, Tuesday, was even worse. Word had spread far and wide, bringing in hordes of visitors to the Sutton Farm. The family put up a no trespassing sign in a feeble attempt to keep people away. Later, they put up signs requesting admission fees, which also had no effect. Pseudoskeptics fixated on these signs almost immediately, claiming that the whole thing was a hoax to make money. Unfortunately, they didn't collect a single penny. The yard was not fully enclosed, so there was no way to enforce admission. The family left the farm for Michigan where they had relatives, but they soon turned around and returned afraid that the mob would steal their meager belongings. At some point during this bedlam, three unknown investigators from Fort Campbell came to the farm and asked for a description of the little men. They left and came back with a model of the creature. Mrs. Lankford said that the man who made it must have known exactly what they looked like. There is no record of these men or the model they made. A few newspaper reports catch the eye. For example... Police said residents of a farm area about half a mile from Kelly reported the rocket ship or flying saucer landed in a field about half a mile from Kelly. The residents told officers they saw a flash coming out of the sky. The glowing missile swooped down on a field near the Sutton Farm. However, in my experience researching these things, the newspapers tend to distort or even invent facts more often than they reveal them. So any news report needs to be taken with a grain of salt. There were many reports of strange objects in the skies around this time, but it is unfortunately impossible to tell if any of them represent anything that actually happened or if any of them are connected to the little men. One sighting seems more interesting than the rest. Mrs. Langford said that a Fort Campbell investigator told her a UFO was sighted at the base around the same time Billy Ray saw his UFO. However, there seemed to be no official report of this. It could be merely a tactic to put her at ease during an interview. It could be a misunderstanding. In any case, it's still interesting. A neighbor saw moving lights in the fields behind the house the night of the incident, 
But everyone living in the area stopped talking to investigators after they saw the public invasion endured by the Suttons. Perhaps there were more witnesses who didn't come forward because they didn't want to end up in the news. That leaves us with very little hard evidence for the case. The only physical evidence was the luminous patch behind the house. However, it was not photographed, nor was a sample taken. I wonder if the mystery could have been solved had a sample been taken. Some speculate that it was merely bioluminescent moss or fungus. I don't have the background to really evaluate this idea. Do these exotic things grow in dry fields in Kentucky? Are they usually isolated? Do they grow larger than the small patch found? It seems unlikely that it could be the cause of the bioluminescent patch. But if a sample had been taken, we would know for sure. There were no footprints in the hardened dirt. There was no evidence of a landing in the gully. The creatures were reported to float, and the UFO could have been light enough to not leave an indentation. It, too, could have floated above the ground. The lack of footprints doesn't necessarily contradict witness statements, but it would have been better if some trace had been found. I don't know what to think of this one. The story is creepy. It gives me chills every time. A few things just don't sit right. It's hard for me to take the case at face value, but every time I start to think there's nothing to it, some detail pulls me back in. Like, why were the creatures absent when the cops came to investigate? Why did they return only when the police left? You could argue that the sirens, headlights, and searchlights would have driven off the apparently light-sensitive creatures. But if they were aliens, then you think they would have figured out how to make sunglasses. Maybe they just didn't want to deal with the commotion. But with all the officers searching yards, fields, and woods, you think they would have spotted one of the creatures. If they were aliens trying to communicate, wouldn't they have come forward once things calmed down a bit and they saw that the police were no different than the Suttons? Some skeptics have argued that the hole in the screen caused by the 20-gauge shotgun was too small. But Lucky was firing right in front of the screen and the gun likely had a muzzle choke, making the pellet spread small. A 20-gauge is pretty small to begin with. The screen wires were bent outwards. A picture of the screen shows that the hole is plenty big enough for a 20-gauge. One thing I don't like about this case is how the witnesses are often derided as ignorant rednecks. Many skeptical reports, whether contemporary to the sightings or more recent, allude to this, suggesting that it is in some way responsible for the sighting. Some pseudo-skeptics report that the whole family were carnival workers. This is false. Only Lucky and Billy Ray worked for a traveling carnival. But even if they were, and even if they were missing half their teeth and they smoked corncob pipes all day, and they never finished high school and they played in a jug band or whatever else, none of this makes any difference. Rednecks living in Kentucky can see UFOs the same as anyone else. This is just a distraction from any real discussion, and is the foremost tactic used by pseudo-skeptics. If you can make the witnesses seem unreliable, even using racism or stereotypes, then you don't have to worry about discussing the case. One skeptic suggested that a flashlight beam hit some scrap metal in the backyard and the reflection was misidentified as little men. But how can scrap metal float around, glow, leave, come back? It's just silly. Another common explanation is that escaped monkeys, dressed in silver suits for some strange reason, caused the ruckus. But there are no reports of escaped monkeys wearing silver suits. A circus maybe, possibly drove through town within a few days of the event, maybe. But there's no reason to believe that the circus monkeys, if they even had any, escaped or were wearing silver suits. 
There is zero witness testimony, records, accounts, or whatever indicating that any monkeys escaped anywhere in the area. Besides, monkeys don't float, they aren't silent, they don't glow, and so on. Plus, when you blast a monkey at point-blank range with a 12-gauge shotgun, you will, without any doubt, end up with a huge mess. Slightly more plausible is the idea that horned owls wielding bioluminescent fungus are responsible for the event. However, the largest horned owl is about two feet tall, not three and a half. Besides, the witnesses didn't describe anything like an owl. Might as well say it was a bald eagle or a kangaroo. This is the kind of lazy nonsense I don't like to even talk about, but it is probably the most popular pseudo-skeptical explanation, so I feel like I have to address it. So here we go. Owls, even horned owls, don't glow. They don't somehow coat themselves in glowing fungus. They don't have arms and oversized hands, nor do they have spindly legs and forearms. They fly rather than float, and when you shoot one at point-blank range with a 12-gauge shotgun, they turn into a pile of mush. For anyone not familiar with guns, a 12-gauge has a bore of around 3 fourths an inch. This is almost twice the bore size of the hand cannon Dirty Harry uses. When you shoot at owls, or any animal for that matter, they become frightened and leave. Bonus points, they don't sound like a metal bucket when you shoot them. I could go on, but I won't. Basically, owls bear absolutely no resemblance at all to what the witnesses described. Owls are only plausible if you believe the witnesses are lying or if you didn't bother to find out what the witnesses said in the first place and just spouted owls for whatever strange reason when somebody asked you your opinion. But if you think that they are making it all up, then you don't really need owls, right? You can just say that it was a hoax. These skeptics, their stuff is so bizarre, so unbelievable, that sometimes I suspect they want us to believe it was aliens. Conspiracy! Wait. Wait, I solved the mystery? So skeptics work for the CIA. They're part of the soft disclosure agenda. They offer explanations that make aliens seem plausible. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, wait, where was I? So other explanations are mass hysteria, religious hysteria, hallucinations, hoax, and on and on. But none of them really fit the case. A lot of people focus on the admission signs. It seems to be clear proof that the whole thing was made up. They hoaxed the event to charge admission fees. But they put up a no trespassing sign first. They only put up the admission signs later. If it was a hoax, then those signs would have been in place right away. And even before that, they asked people to leave. They didn't want those strangers invading their house. If it was hoaxed for money, then why would they ask people to leave? Also, there wasn't really any physical evidence. If it was hoaxed to lure in paying suckers, then I feel like they would have fabricated something, like making a doll or mangling a chicken foot or something, so that the people paying to get in would have something to see. This is how it goes with hoaxes. They make something fake to lure people in. I never heard of a hoax where they charge admission but don't actually have anything to show the paying audience. Who would even think of such a thing? Can you imagine paying to get into the circus or whatever to see the alien in a tank? You go in, you pay five bucks, you walk in the room, and it's just an empty room. Ridiculous. No, if it was hoax to charge admission, they would have definitely made some kind of exhibit to show. Also, they would have closed off the house in some way to limit admission and collect money. But the fences were not good enough to keep people out. And they had no way to enforce payment. They didn't collect a single admission fee. This explanation looks rock solid at first, 
but when examined closely, it falls apart. They just didn't act like people who hoaxed it to charge admission. Many of the pseudo-skeptics say that they were all drunk and somehow this made them hallucinate aliens? Not only was there no evidence of drunkenness, I mean, come on, just think about it. Maybe they were hosting an intergalactic kegger? Am I buying the wrong kind of beer? I have a cold one once in a while, but I never saw aliens. The suggestion of drunkenness seems to be completely made up by various news outlets. None of the investigators who went to the house that night reported drunkenness. To the contrary, Chief Greenwell specifically noted that there was no evidence of alcohol consumption. So where does that leave us? The pseudo-skeptics can't figure anything out, so what happened? I think the most plausible explanation, at least on the skeptical side of things, is that someone played a prank with puppets. Witness descriptions could support this idea. They had a perfectly round head. They appeared to be made of metal. Perhaps they were coated with a glowing paint. The way that they flipped when struck might suggest suspension by strings. They left when the police came. They floated like suspended puppets. The eyes lacked pupils and eyelids. The legs and forearms were described as spindly like broomstick handles. The legs were inflexible and seemed to not have any joints. The arms, hands, and fingers also didn't seem to have any joints. The head never turned and there was no neck. Mrs. Lankford said it looked like a gas can. When struck, they made a sound like a metal bucket. They didn't come until nightfall and left before daybreak. They seemed to avoid the light. Perhaps this was to conceal any wires or rigging to control them. They never tried to come in the house or do anything, they just came and went. Puppets would have limited mobility and would not be able to go in the house. I think you could make a strong argument that they saw puppets of some kind. The glowing patch that Chief Greenwell found could have been glowing paint. But if they were puppets, they would have needed some kind of rigging to float around. It seems implausible that anyone could have set this up and taken it down without anybody noticing. Also, I doubt that any puppeteer, who must have been somewhat nearby, would have stayed for so long with all of those bullets flying around. And even if they did stick around, someone would have seen them. Unless they had remote-controlled puppets back then? If a puppet was hit with so much gunfire, surely parts would have been blown off and remained as evidence. If they were made of metal and strong enough to withstand many gunshots, then they would have been too heavy to move around like they did. Mrs. Langford's description of a gas can was probably not literal, but only to give the general size and shape of the thing. She maintained that it was an actual creature, and never said that it was an object. And finally, no matter how good a puppet looks, it never really looks like a real, living creature. The witnesses were sure they saw living creatures. I don't know. I go back and forth. But of all the explanations, the only one that could explain what happened is the puppets. It isn't perfect, but it's the best one available. But it doesn't really fit either. Now, what about the UFO? Unfortunately, the only person at the farmhouse to see it was Billy Ray. He is the only witness that acted like a hoaxer. He enjoyed the attention. His story changed with retellings. He elaborated details. None of the other witnesses did these things. No one else at the house saw the UFO, and Billy Ray seems pretty unreliable. I don't know what to make of it. Maybe he saw a bright shooting star, and it wasn't connected to the events. Who knows? With no other witnesses and no evidence, we can only speculate. And as to the other reported UFO sightings in the area, there is really no way to tie those sightings to this event. Okay, what about other explanations? 
At some point, it occurred to me that it could be a test by the government to see how people would react to aliens. Now, I just want to say there's zero evidence to support this theory, but sometimes it's fun to spitball these things. The government was, and probably still is, concerned about what would happen if people thought they were meeting aliens. There is a legitimate concern of serious disruption to society. No one knows for sure, but any responsible government would be concerned about it. I like to think that people would be cool with aliens, but maybe there would be a stock market crash, riding in the streets, plane crashes, all that stuff. Mass hysteria. Look at it this way. If someone was going to make a realistic-looking puppet and put on some kind of show like this, it would take a team of highly talented people and a big budget. It would take people braver than the average bear, perhaps military people, who would stick around in the face of gunfire. The duration of the event doesn't make sense if it was a prank. But if it was a government experiment to test what would happen if people saw aliens, that could explain both the duration of the event and why the creatures left when the cops got there. Maybe they wanted to see if, after repeated peaceful advances, the people would stop shooting and try to communicate. Maybe invite them in for some hot chocolate. I doubt it was a government experiment, but that's just as plausible as suited monkeys. Why not? There's a ton of skeptical blogs and such available online but I wasn't able to find any good ones. They all used the most sensational accounts from the newspapers rather than relying on what the witnesses said. Problem is, most newspapers basically made stuff up to sell stories. For example, they say there were 12 to 15 little men reported, but nobody reported this, and Mrs. Lankford even specifically said that no one reported 12 to 15. They also say there is no evidence that anyone from the Air Force was there, but we have statements from many people involved, including the police chief and main witnesses, saying that the Air Force was there. So was the Army. There's lots more, but I don't really feel the need to address every inaccuracy. Often the skeptics will find a tiny discrepancy somewhere and use it to disprove an entire case. Well, you know what? They should be held to the same standards that they require of others. That's all I'm saying. As far as I can tell, most of these skeptics are pretty lazy. They don't want to do any real research or investigating. They just want someone to make fun of. It's childish and indicative of low self-esteem. And I think most people see through the nonsense, which is why there are so many shows, movies, blogs, whatever, about aliens. And so few popular skeptics. So many people are interested in this and have had strange experiences of their own. By using fake information and absurd arguments, the skeptics render themselves irrelevant. Everyone who interviewed the witnesses said that they were genuinely upset. Even skeptical interviewers, who would eviscerate the Suttons in the news after talking to them, thought that the witnesses believed that they were saying even if no one else did. Something happened. No one knows what it was, but the people at the farmhouse were spooked enough to spend the night shooting at something. So, aliens. When I was researching this case, something kind of weird happened. I was looking at a sketch of a creature when my 10-year-old came over. He looked at the picture and said, these are his exact words, it looks like a person wearing a suit. It was weird because I was thinking the exact same thing. The difference is my boy didn't know anything about the case. He never heard of it before. But one of the popular theories is that it was aliens wearing some kind of suit. What if they were wearing some kind of suit made from an advanced material? Something built out of nanotech or whatever Tony Stark uses. What if it was some kind of advanced technology that would have seemed incomprehensible to someone back then? Something so far advanced that
that it would have seemed like magic. A suit could explain why living creatures had immunity to bullets, or how they didn't have any necks or joints, and yet were described as scurrying off. They looked like puppets, but they sure didn't move like puppets. A high-tech suit could explain this puzzle. It could explain how they appeared to have metal skin that seemed to move like real skin. I don't know, though. If it was aliens, surely they would have been able to observe us and learn how we interact and behave. People in general are pretty violent. We fight all the time. Many of our sports are basically fighting. Wouldn't they know that approaching people would likely end up like this? Wouldn't they be able to figure out our languages ahead of time? And instead of freaking us out, arriving at night when they know we usually sleep, and creeping around someone's farm, just send a letter or something? Or at least communicate in some way instead of slowly walking towards us hand raised over and over again? At least say hello or something? If they were immune to gunfire, then why did they run from it? Why did they avoid the light? If they were sensitive to light, surely they would have invented sunglasses? If they were trying to communicate, why did they keep scurrying off? If they didn't like getting shot, then why did they keep coming back? I can't say how aliens would act if they came here, no one can. But it just seems implausible that they would do all this stuff. Maybe their communication is so different than ours that they somehow thought we communicated with gestures? Anything is possible, and we could go around in circles all day with this stuff. When you get down to it, there really is no way to know. Some people have suggested demons or fairies. Maybe something interdimensional? I don't know about this kind of stuff, so I don't really have anything to say, but I wanted to throw it out there because a lot of people think it's a possibility. I don't know about this one. This case is one of my favorites because I keep going back and forth. The witnesses were clearly terrified. Something happened, but nothing makes any sense. But something obviously happened. It seems like a prank or a hoax, but it doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any motive for a hoax. I can't make any sense of it. There isn't any plausible explanation of any kind for this case. It's a total mystery. And that's what makes it really interesting. If anyone is interested, there's a Little Green Men Festival in Kelly. This year is from August 16 to 17. I think the website is kellyky.com. It looks like a ton of fun, but I don't think I can make it. I already spent my tinfoil hat money to go to AlienCon in LA. Maybe next year. Let's end with a quote from Isabel Davis. Perhaps it is unreasonable to expect the human race, which for so many thousands of years has considered itself unique in the universe, to judge without bias a report that we might have had a visit from the neighbors. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to help us out, check out our affiliate link in the description. This time around, we're taking a look at UFO speakers. Now, these aren't just UFO speakers, but they actually hover. They're pretty dang cool. Yeah, they, they float. They're like anti-gravity technology. Yeah. yeah, they float and spin and light up and stuff. One version is just a speaker. The other version is like a lamp. There's a couple different types available. I have the black one. It's, it's not the tall lamp. It's just like the speaker. It's really awesome, though. I use that thing every day. Even it's, when it's not on, it's just sitting there hovering. Yeah, it's so cool. These things are awesome. So check it out. The link in the description. And your purchase helps to support the show. It's an affiliate link, so we get a little bit of that, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Keep it strange.